ancient Greek geometers were obsessed with constructions. Why? Euclid's element spends almost as much time showing how to draw geometrical figures as it does proving theorems about them. In fact, it seems Euclid thought drawing was a prerequisite for proving. For instance, the first theorem involving squares is the Pythagorean theorem. In the proposition right before it, Euclid explains in detail how to construct the square by ruler and compass. And the same goes for every other geometrical entity ever used in the elements. First you construct it, and only then can you say anything about it. Without constructions there can be no geometry, Euclid seems to be saying. And not only Euclid, all the best Greek geometers had their own signature constructions. Three famous construction problems dominated higher Greek geometry for centuries, doubling the cube, trisecting the angle, squaring the circle. There was a long list of mathematicians who contributed their own distinctive solutions to these problems, and that is like a big who's who of everybody who was anybody in ancient Greek geometry. What fundamental motivation, what philosophy drew ancient Greek geometers to this fixation with constructions? Why did Greek mathematicians think it was a good idea to spend hundreds of years trying to make an angle the third of another angle, or a cube twice the volume of another cube, in dozens of different ways? Why did they so stubbornly bang their heads against this same wall for century upon century? What sin could be so grave that they imposed on themselves this Sisyphean task? Why indeed make things at all? And why do so only sometimes? Why meticulously articulate recipes for transferring line segments by ruler and compass only to then suddenly move entire triangles like it's nobody's business in the very next proposition? That's what Euclid seems to do in his first couple of propositions when he uses superposition to prove triangle congruence in proposition 4. He's apparently forgotten all that importance that he attached to doing everything by ruler and compass steps, which was so evident in propositions 2 and 3 just before it. Where is the consistency in this? Euclid knew what he was doing, in my opinion. Constructions were a deliberate strategy to guard against fundamental threats to the reliability and rigor of geometry. If our house is built on rotten pillars, it is only a matter of time before it comes crashing down. And some ancient critics of geometry indeed identified some ominous cracks in its foundations. Remember, the, the quarrelsome Greeks, they question everything with seal. Some people tried to take down geometry. But they were determined to show that it was a pseudo-knowledge that was by no means as certain and exact as the mathematicians claimed. Geometers had to deal with such external attacks. More so than in any other century or any other culture, the mathematicians in ancient Greece were under constant attack of this nature, critical philosophical attacks. So the mathematicians had to formulate a defense, and they did, in my opinion. This is where their obsession with constructions comes from, as a defense against philosophical attack. What then were these philosophical attacks to which constructions were the answer? Well, I believe there, there are a number of them, and here's one. False diagram fallacies. If you draw di diagrams that are slightly off, you can easily fool yourself when doing geometry. 
There's a famous example, for instance, where one proves that any triangle is isosceles. The conclusion is obviously absurd. And yet it is proved in a way that looks just like any other proof in Euclid. This false proof is made possible by a subtle error in the diagram. The, the proof involves bisecting one of the angles of a, an arbitrary triangle and then raising a perpendicular bisector of the opposite side of that triangle. And these two lines meet somewhere. It's drawn in a plausible-looking way in the diagram. but And then the proof proceeds based on the diagram, just as Euclid also relies on diagrams in his proofs, of course. However, the way the diagram was drawn was erroneous. The two lines were drawn as meeting inside the triangle. In fact, their true intersection would be outside the triangle, and this is why the logic of the proof uh, doesn't apply the way one would think. It's a subtle issue. It's very easy to miss this uh, positioning of this intersection point. It's by no means uh, very evident. So when we reason based on the diagram, there were these hidden assumptions. We were hardly even aware of them, namely the location of the intersection point of these two lines, the two bisectors, whether that's inside or outside the triangle. It's not an issue that you pay too much attention to. You, you might, If you just looked at the diagram, it looks uh, fine, you know, and you would have thought that that was safe to reason that way, just as you always do in Euclid. The rest of the proof, indeed, typical Euclid-style stuff. So, the example shows that uh, a small and subtle mistake in the way you draw a diagram can completely destroy the certainty of geometrical reasoning. Just one little error creeping in and uh, everything collapses. And all the other steps of the proof, they were very carefully justified, just as Euclid always justifies each of his steps. It looks just like anything from the elements. It was all for nothing, because that one subtle error in the diagram poisoned the well. It destroyed the entire thing. And the Greeks, they were evidently well aware of this type of problem. Plato mentions it explicitly. Here's what he says. Geometrical diagrams have often a slight and invisible flaw in the first part of the process and are consistently mistaken in the long deductions which follow. So that's Plato, and he's exactly right, of course. A slight and invisible flaw at the outset is enough to ruin the entire long deductions which follow. And we even know for a fact that Euclid himself wrote a treatise on fallacies in geometry, which is now lost, but it's very likely to have dealt with uh, these kinds of issues. So the Greeks, they were clearly well aware of this threat to geometrical certainty. What did they conclude from this? How did they answer this challenge? Today, the issue of uh, diagram fallacies is taken to show how dangerous it is to rely on visual or intuitive assumptions in mathematics. The solution is to purge geometry of any kind of reasoning based on diagrams. In the late 19th century, this view was expressed forcefully by leading geometers, and it has remained the, uh, the mainstream view ever since. A theorem is only proved when the proof is completely independent of the diagram. As Hilbert said, for example, expressing the typical modern view, instead of relying on pictures, geometry must be made to proceed through purely logical deductions. But that's not the only possible diagnosis or treatment of the problem with the erroneous proof. Another point of view is to say, the problem is not that the proof relied too much on diagrammatic reasoning. In fact, the problem is that it did so too little. 
The problem is not that the proof is insufficiently divorced from visual considerations, but that the proof is too divorced from visual considerations. The, the example doesn't show that the diagrams are dangerous, even if they are the sort of schematic accompaniments or otherwise logically solid proofs. Instead, what the example shows is that diagrams are dangerous when they are merely treated as such, as secondary to the actual proof. The solution is, therefore, not to place less emphasis on diagrams, but more. That is to say, to demand diagrams to be not merely schematically sketched, but in fact precisely constructed according to the most exacting standards and rigorous proofs that these constructions accomplish precisely the configuration in question with accuracy. So that would indeed prevent errors of this type from occurring. No one adhering to that mode of reasoning that demands the highest standards of construction before a diagram can be used would ever uh, find themselves reasoning about false diagrams like the one in the example that I just gave. So this diagnosis of the source of the error in the false proof uh, leads immediately to the conclusion that precise constructions of such things as angle bisectors, uh, bisectors of segments, perpendicular lines, are foundationally very important, and that no proof must ever be formulated without constructive recipes for all entities occurring in that proof, and having that those constructions having been established beforehand and proven to be correct. This is exactly what we find in Euclid's elements, in fact. Without fail, Euclid always meticulously shows how to construct all entities involved in all his proofs. Indeed, all the constructions needed to ensure that we end up with the correct figure rather than deceptive one, in the example I discussed above, are in fact carefully spelled out as core propositions right at the heart of the elements. Namely, how to bisect an angle, that's Euclid's proposition 9, how to bisect a line segment, that's Euclid's proposition 10, how to raise a perpendicular from a point on a line, that's Euclid's proposition 11, how to drop a perpendicular from a point to a line, proposition 12. There you have it. In other words, right off the bat of the elements, Euclid carefully explicates precisely the tools needed to solve the false diagram problem mentioned by Plato. If you follow Euclid's constructions, rule, careful ruler and compass steps to construct your diagrams, you would never end up in this situation about reasoning with this false but plausible looking diagram that was the source of error in, the, uh, in this fallacy that I described. It's, so, in other words, Euclid provides the tools to answer this philosophical challenge. Is that a coincidence? I don't think so. Euclid knows about the problem. Euclid knows how to solve it. That's why he's obsessed with constructions. Or a better way of putting it, that's one of the reasons. But there are others, equally compelling reasons to base one's geometry on constructions. Constructions are related to existence issues. It's impossible to conduct a serious axiomatic study of geometry without paying attention to existence uh, questions. For example, do squares exist? Existence is separate from definition. Euclid defines what a square means in his definitions, the meaning of the term square. But that doesn't mean there are any squares. You could also define what a unicorn means that doesn't make unicorns exist. You might say it's obvious, you know, of course there are squares. Don't be silly. Any child knows there are squares. Uh, you can see squares with your own eyes. However, it's more subtle than you might think. In fact, the existence of squares implies the parallel postulate 
this is what uh, Wallace showed in the 17th century. You can replace Euclid's parallel postulate with the assumption that you could make a square on a given line segment. Then you could prove Euclid's parallel postulate and all these other theorems based on that assumption. So it's not at all a small matter to assume that there are squares. Therefore, any investigation that aims to elucidate the fundamental assumptions of geometry cannot treat any object whose existence has not first been either proved or explicitly postulated. So to do otherwise would be to render the entire enterprise of axiomatic geometry completely useless and moot, since it would open this back door through which any number of hidden assumptions can creep in. The point of an existence proof for squares, therefore, is not so much to establish that there is such a thing as squares, it is rather to ensure that any foundational assumptions involved in supposing the existence of squares have been systematically accounted for. Now, Euclid's construction of a square accomplishes that goal. If you had just gone about saying, well, of course, there are squares, don't be silly, then you would have exposed yourself to making these kinds of uh, unconscious assumptions that would uh, ruin the value of having a carefully organized uh, systematic geometry of the kind that Euclid offers in the first place. There's another example of this type, of these hidden assumptions kind of uh, stuff happening. Uh, Legendre, he's made an attempt to prove by contradiction, using only the first four postulates of Euclid, that the angle sum of a triangle cannot be less than 180 degrees. His proof implicitly assumes that given two intersecting lines and a point not on those lines, it is possible to draw a line through that point that intersects the two given lines. That is to say, you have like a shape like a V and a dot somewhere inside the V, so to speak, then you can, through that dot it's possible to draw a line cutting through the two sides of the V. Well, that seems like an innocent enough uh, assumption, doesn't it? However, it does not hold in hyperbolic geometry, Therefore, Legendre's attempted proof is worthless because the contradiction uh, that he's trying to prove that the triangle angle sum theorem is trying to prove it by contradiction, but the contradiction did not come from the assumptions that he intended to refute, which had to do with the angle sum. Rather, the contradiction came from this innocent seeming assumption, the existence assumption that he introduced along the way, the existence of this line cutting across the, the two legs of the letter V. So the point is that this is yet another example showing the danger of letting even the most harmless-looking existence assumption or construction assumption uh, proliferate in your theory uh, without explicit control. Inconsistencies can arise from even the most inconspicuous assumption. So the moral of the story is that the mathematician must stick to a minimalistic set of stringently controlled construction principles whose consistency should be as unquestionable as possible. Issues of this nature were recognized in antiquity. Quite possibly, even the specific issue of Legendre's assumption may have been investigated in works that are no longer extant, for example, the Lost Treatise on Parallel Lines by Archimedes, or at any rate, uh, closely related issues of that nature are explicitly uh, dealt with in the treatments of parallels by Simplicius, Al-Yavari, in the Arabic tradition. In, on a more conceptual level, uh, Aristotle pinpoints the same type of fallacy in the work of some who, as he says, suppose that there are 
they, that they are constructing parallel lines. However, they fail to see that they are assuming facts which it is impossible to demonstrate unless parallels exist. So it turns out that those who reason uh, in this way, they merely say that the particular thing is if it is. That is to say, they think they have demonstrated the existence of parallel lines, but they have really indirectly assumed the existence of parallel lines along the way. And Aristotle is right. Circular assumptions are easy to make, especially with respect to existence issues, subtle foundational questions, in, uh, not least in the theory of parallels. In fact, the, what we mentioned about squares is also related to issues of parallels because the, the opposite sides of a square are parallel. So there are a lot of hidden subtlety in those kinds of questions. It's not something you can just brush over. So from this example, Aristotle draws the obvious conclusion, namely that existence issues must be controlled by either explicit postulates or existence proofs. Here's what Aristotle says. What is denoted by the first terms is assumed, but as regards their existence, this must be assumed for the principles, but proved for the rest. That is to say, you assume it, of course, for circles and lines, the ruler and the compass, those are postulates, so we assume that circles and lines exist effectively in the Euclid's postulates, but then for other things like squares, you have to prove that. Aristotle takes this example. He says, what a triangle is, the geometry assumes, but that it exists, he proves. Aristotle is quite right, of course. And in, in, uh, Euclid's very first proposition proves that equilateral triangles exist, of course. And his 46th proposition proves that squares exist, and so it goes. Constructions are a way to ensure existence. However, there is much more to constructions than merely establishing existence. Constructions also establish consistency. That is to say, it shows that objects are not self-contradictory. For example, suppose I add to Euclid's elements the definition, a super right triangle is a triangle, each of whose angles is a right angle. Then it will follow that the angle sum of this, this triangle, the super right triangle, is three right angles, by definition, also, though, the angle sum of the triangle must be two right angles, according to a theorem of Euclid's. So two right angles equals three right angles. Well, that's obviously a contradiction. So this definition of a super-right triangle is disturbingly similar to that of other geometric objects, like an equilateral triangle, an isosceles triangle. Applying Euclid's theorems to a super-right triangle sounds just like the kind of thing we do in geometry all the time, such as applying it to an equilateral triangle or a socialist triangle. What, how are we sure that the super right triangle is any different, you know? So this example casts doubt on the entire enterprise of geometry. How do we know that the propositions of the elements are not one or two steps away from leading to contradictions, just as the super right triangle led to a contradiction that 2 equals 3? So the geometer must reply with some kind of definitive criterion that explains why none or their theorems, the theorems of the geometry, are susceptible to this kind of error. This, the error of speaking about the super-right triangle and therefore introducing hidden inconsistencies, such as the consequence that 2 equals 3, which obviously ruins all of mathematics, the credibility of the entire subject. So, in a way, of course, it's clear what the problem is. There are no super-right triangles. You can't have a triangle with three right angles. It's impossible. So, in a way, you can say the problem would be solved if we just ensure that the existence of the objects that you speak of. So, 
you you say arguments based on the idea or concept of a super right triangle, they are invalid, not uh, legitimate in geometry because geometry only speaks about things that exist, and you haven't proven that super right triangles exist. Therefore, you couldn't apply this kind of reasoning. Like I apply Euclid's angle sum theorem to a super right triangle, I get that three equals two, and so. One way then of establishing that objects that you talk about exist are to say only constructive definitions that apply a recipe for making the object defined are permitted in mathematics. That would ensure that only anything that you define also exists. Clearly that's not the path taken by Euclid. For instance, Euclid defines a square at the outset, but he only shows how to produce one much later in Proposition 46. It's based on substantial uh, previous results. Like you said, it has to do with the theory of parallels and so on. Very complicated stuff, really. Uh, much more complicated than you might think. You say, well, it's just a simple square. No, it's not. It's very subtle. So we've got to establish the existence of these kinds of objects some other way or decide existence questions some other way, not merely by definition. Another strategy would be to demand that we cannot make propositional statements about a particular class of objects unless we have first shown beforehand that the class in question is non-empty. So our proof that 2 equals 3 is uh, not uh, valid because the inferences that you make in these kinds of proofs are only warranted if they are supported by suitable existence proofs. That's why theorems about triangles cannot be applied to super right triangles. However, they can be applied to equilateral triangles, to isosceles triangles, which Euclid in fact proves exist by constructions like the equilateral triangle in the first proposition. But uh, existence is not the only aspect that should be emphasized in this regard. Another important lesson from the super right triangle example is the danger of defining objects through multiple conditions. The super right triangle is defined as having three sides, having one right angle, another right angle, and then another right angle, so to speak. And the first conditions were fine. You can have a, 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 a three-sided figure with a right angle, no problem, right angle triangles, they're all over the place, the famous through the Pythagorean theorem and so on, right? So the problem comes when you keep adding more conditions, you say, okay, it's a, it's a triangle, it has a right angle, and now the, the next angle is also a right one. Ah, that's where it went wrong. So it, it was, as you kept adding stuff, eventually it kind of collapsed, right? The more conditions you add, the greater the risk of ending up with an inconsistency. Another example of this is to say, let ABC be a triangle such that one angle is a right angle, the sides next to the right angle have lengths 4 and 7, and the third side has length 9. Actually, I've taken this example from a 16th century a geometry textbook, but this book messed up. Some of these conditions would have been fine on their own. However, all of them taken together are inconsistent. You cannot make a right triangle with those three side lengths. These numbers contradict the Pythagorean theorem. So what this shows is that defining or introducing an object through a list of specifications of its properties is unacceptable in geometry. Doing so would leave the door wide open for possible inconsistency to enter mathematics and hence to ruin the claim to certainty of mathematical reasoning.
Therefore, a rigorous mathematical theory needs a systematic guarantee that this kind of errors can never be committed within that theory. Constructions are a way to provide precisely such a guarantee. Instead of introducing objects by a list of properties, construction builds it up step by step. Properties can no longer be ascribed to an object merely by decree. Instead, they must be introduced by a rigorously controlled stepwise process. Each step in the process involves the application of construction postulate or demonstrated construction proposition or theorem, which means that assumptions and conditions of validity are carefully monitored. They are reduced to a few axiomatic principles. So constructions are a kind of a godsend for the geometry for foundational purposes in that, in that way. It's a possible way to address these issues related to existence and so on. In fact, one could argue that existence aspects alone is not enough to solve this problem, this challenge posed by the super-right triangle fallacy. The, the solution to say, well, super-right triangle problem, uh, we don't encounter it because we always have existence proofs, you know, for our objects, and you cannot prove that super-right triangles exist because they don't, so therefore we're immune from making these kinds of errors that were based on assuming the existence of super-right triangles. Well, if you think that that's the, the answer, the solution to the challenge of super-right triangles, then you have effectively diagnosed the problem with super-right triangles as just another variation on the existence issue discussed before, the one that Aristotle mentioned and so on. However, you can readily see this example of the super-right triangle as pointing to a deeper problem. It's arguably not only about the existence, but in fact it casts doubt on the credibility of verbal logic altogether. It's clear that being more careful about existence issues would eliminate a particular problem of the super-right triangle that in that one example. However, it is not clear whether this is the only problem with relying on a verbal logic or verbally defined objects. So we know for a fact that logical paradoxes and fallacies figure prominently in Greek thought in the classical era. Some of these are clearly relevant to mathematics, like Zeno's paradoxes of motion, which we have discussed before. There are others as well. The liar paradox, for example, arguably shows that natural language propositional logic is incoherent. It shows that uh, verbal logic allows propositional statements to be formulated that are inherently contradictory. The liar paradox is based on statements such as uh, this statement is false or I am lying. You know, it's another way of saying something similar. Those are examples of those kinds of statements that are inherently contradictory. Uh, that is to say, if that statement is true, it follows that it must be false. And if the statement is false, it follows that it must be true. So this, that's what makes these statements paradoxical. There, there is no way of assigning a truth value to such a statement without ending up with a contradiction. The statement, this statement is false, cannot be false because then it would have to be true, and it cannot be true because then it would have to be false. So the statement it cannot be either true or false. That kind of thing clearly poses an issue for logic-based conceptions of mathematics. For instance, in connection with proofs by contradiction. In proofs by contradiction, you basically assume that 
any propositional statement must be either true or false. You, know, you, you rule out the possibility that it, that it's false, then it leaves only the option that it must be true. However, with this liar paradox kind of stuff, it shows that that reasoning is not always applicable to any uh, verbally formulated seemingly propositional statement, like this statement is false. So how can you then make that assumption for mathematical statements when you know that it's not true for any uh, verbal uh, propositional statement? Well, that's a challenge. Another example of a paradox discussed in ancient times is that of the horn. The paradox is obtained by the following line of reasoning. What you have not lost, you have. But you have not lost horns. Therefore, you have horns. Well, that's a paradox, right? So you, although the first premises were both correct, indeed, you have not lost any horns, and what you have not lost, you have in a certain sense, and, but the conclusion is wrong. You don't have horns? No, I don't have any horns. So we see how a kind of uh, a blind mechanical application of logical inferences in this kind of quasi-algebraic manner easily leads to absurd conclusions. Just as with the super-right triangle fallacy, it's possible to attribute the problem to some specific cause. So in this case, with the horn, it wasn't so much an existence issue, it was rather a kind of misleading ambiguity that was involved in the statement, what you have not lost, you have, is sort of, it's true in a certain sense, but then we used it in another sense when we made an inference to the, that we have horns. So that was the kind of ambiguity that caused the paradox or allowed the paradox to, uh, to go through. And in this case, you might say that the fallacy is, is obvious, so to speak. However, trying to diffuse the paradox in these ways, it doesn't solve the core issue, perhaps, exposed by the paradox. Namely, this idea that blind logic in and of itself seems to lead to erroneous conclusions. So... Maybe logic itself is sort of uh, not very reliable, although we could, it wasn't really a, uh, a serious chance that we would end up believing that we have horns. Nevertheless, it shows that, well, if logic was unreliable in this case, the kind of mechanical infer logical inferences were unreliable in this case, how do we know that they're reliable in all these other cases then, right? in the mathematical cases? That is how a philosophical critic might challenge Euclid, you know. In fact, this multitude of logical paradoxes, you have the horn paradox, the liar paradox, and there were others, this arguably validates the suspicion that when we supplemented verbal logic with existence proofs, we had not yet gotten to the bottom of all its problems yet. Something about this, the, the real problem is kind of purely verbal reasoning, like the liar paradox and the horns they seem, if you try to say that the essence of the Euclid's method, this is logical inferences, then it seems that those kinds of things should also be sort of encompassed in that same logical framework. Mathematicians could credibly be challenged that way. Somebody who, who wasn't already convinced of the power of mathematics could be swayed by these kinds of arguments and say, well, how do you know it's not like that? Uh, maybe Euclid makes these kinds of fallacies too, just like in these paradoxes, just like with the horns, just like with the liar and so on, or the super right triangle. You know, the, these are the kinds of things that a critic of geometry might use to put doubts into the minds of Euclid's audience 
And the mathematician need to have a strong comeback to these things. They need to say, no, that could never happen because here's why, you know, a criteria of geometrical method that systematically excludes those possibilities altogether. So this stuff about constructions could indeed solve all of those problems. It's very plausible indeed that the Greeks would have taken radical steps to protect themselves from logical fallacies, from paradoxes. This situation may be somewhat comparable to the discovery that the square root of 2 is irrational, famous result. This would have been a discovery from the very early days of Greek geometry. We don't know much about that for certain, that early times, little survives in terms of sources. However, a development more or less along the following lines has often been imagined. Oh, in the beginning, the Greeks, they blissfully assumed that arithmetic and geometry would always be in natural harmony. Number and geometry, their best buddies. The square root of two discovery ruined this. It shows that natural geometrical entities, like the diagonal of unit square, which has a length of square root of two, of course, uh, could not be represented by numbers, that is to say, uh, rational numbers, a whole number divided by a whole number. So you would have thought that this pre-existing harmony between numbers and geometry, that mathematics is one and it doesn't you know, favor one child over the other, so to speak, in terms of the numerical side and the geometrical side. Nevertheless, that did happen. And so it's a very disturbing development that it happened that geometry has certain things and the other sibling number doesn't have those things, you know, the length of the something so simple as the diagonal of unit square is already something that exists only in geometry. It doesn't exist in the world of numbers, so to speak. If by number you mean rational numbers like they did back then. So perhaps then, this is the way the story goes, the way people have imagined that the early development we might have gone, is that the Greeks burned their fingers, as it were, in this example, and they would not make that mistake twice. Their response was an extreme foundational purge it eradicated any foundational status of arithmetic and then some so from that moment on everything in greek mathematics is at bottom geometry even where a modern mind wishes to see algebra euclid and the other greek mathematicians they insist on geometrical formulations with a pedantry bordering on paranoia so that's kind of a plausible story the historical evidence or absence thereof of this uh, this narrative of a square root of two crisis and the radical response to it, well, that is a much debated issue among historians. Maybe it happened, maybe not necessarily in that exact form. However, the basic point, though, is very plausible, namely the, the basic point that Greek mathematicians may very well have gone to great lengths to protect themselves from foundational objections. That at least... Uh, fits contextually, culturally. It was indeed a time when the foundations of any subject was constantly under attack from rival philosophers. People were ready to go to the ends of the earth to rebut those kinds of charges. The Greeks uh, took that as one of their core obligations or tasks of a philosopher. So extreme action in response to paradoxes that call the bedrock of mathematics into question is indeed something that is very plausible, likely to have happened in Greek times. Arguably, also that hypothesis that that did happen has a strong historical precedence in the form of the square root of two situation, which is, well, it's not a historical fact exactly. Nevertheless, 
uh, is quite uh, broadly plausible in, 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 the, in the relevant respects here, it's certainly squarely within the realm of historical possibility that this kind of context may have led to the radical proposal of denying any reliance on abstract logic in mathematics and instead founding all of geometry on concretely constructed figures. Stuff you draw with ruler and compass, that's all geometry is about. It's a way of uh, separating mathematics from verbal logic, from things that are defined merely through words, like the super right triangle, like the liar paradox, like the paradox of the horns, and so on. So verbal logic is dangerous. It invites paradoxes, and it has no guard against reasoning about inconsistent objects, such as super right triangles. Making constructions rather than logic the foundations of geometry solves these problems. Maybe that's why the Greeks loved construction so much. Maybe that's why Euclid has his ruler and compass stuff and places so much emphasis on it. Of course, we can never say that definitively because the sources, you know, we don't know what the Greeks thought philosophically. They never explained that. So we have to take what information we can from their technical works, their their mathematical content of their proofs. So in this uh, connection, here's one suggestive aspect of that. We can never find definitive proofs, of course, but here's one interesting angle on it, on this uh, question. Euclid's proofs are all purely quantifier-free, as some historians have observed. That is to say, Euclid's proofs never make assertions of the form there exists, or for all. From the point of view of modern mathematics, which is a logic-oriented mathematics, those phrases are fundamental, and they're used all the time. In, these phrases are even so commonly used that the mathematicians don't have the patience to spell them out, these two-syllable expressions, every time they use them. They exist for all. Instead, they have made up special symbols to abbreviate these already extremely brief phrases. There's a backwards E symbol, the upside-down A symbol that mathematicians use for this stuff. So I mentioned Hilbert before, a leading pioneer of the modernist movement around 1900. I mentioned that Hilbert wanted to translate all visual information or any inferences based on diagrams into purely logical forms. That leads precisely to formulations with those favorite phrases of the mathematician. There exists so-and-so. For all objects of such and such a class, this and that property holds. That's the language of modern mathematics. Constantly using those kinds of phrasings, that type of formulation. Not to Euclid. He never uses that manner of speaking, which is so natural to logic-oriented mathematics. So this observation fits very well then with the hypothesis that Greek mathematicians vehemently rejected the notion that the reasoning was based on syllogistic or propositional logic, and instead they relied on constructions. In fact, they did so precisely because logic is so problematic. That's what I hypothesize anyway. As usual, we cannot know this thing for certain, of course. Euclid didn't say why he's obsessed with constructions, but I think this stuff is a very good way of uh, making sense of it. All right, then. So we have seen now a number of specific considerations that point towards the foundational importance of constructions. Now, let's bring these ideas together into a single philosophy. In fact, there is such a philosophy. I call it operationalism. 
operationalism is a term most closely associated with the 20th century movement in philosophy of science. It grew out of relativity theory, quantum mechanics, and modern science stuff. However, several of its key ideas are much older, much more universal. And I propose that this rich tradition in philosophy of science largely was foreshadowed in Greek philosophy of geometry. The key commitments and motivations of modern operationalism and related traditions could very plausibly have been precisely mirrored in Greek geometrical thought. Let's see how. One of the leading modern defenders of operationalism is the Harvard physicist Percy Bridgman, a Nobel Prize winner. Here's how he formulates the core principle of operationalism. Quote, We mean by any concept nothing more than a set of operations. The concept is synonymous with the corresponding set of operations. That's the quote from Bridgman. And he had the physical concepts in mind, but you could equally well apply to geometry. For example, what does triangle mean? The operationalist answer is that triangle means the figure obtained when drawing three intersecting lines with a ruler. That diagram is not a drawing of a triangle. It's not a physical instantiation of a more formal concept of triangle or in any other way subordinated to or derived from some kind of purer conception of triangle. No, a diagram resulting from these operations simply is what a triangle is. The act of drawing itself is the root meaning of the concept of triangle. The act of drawing is the foundational bedrock on which any claim about triangles ultimately rests. When Euclid says, let ABC be a triangle, strictly speaking, according to operationalism, what he really means is, draw one line, then another line, and another one is three lines, making three points of intersection. That's what it means to let something be a triangle. It's literally synonymous with the very act of drawing itself, the operation of constructing the figure. And you can do the same with other geometrical concepts. For example, what is a line? Well, take a piece of string and pull the ends. That's a straight line. It's an operational definition of what a straight line is. Something you do. You know, you, you explain what a straight line is in terms of actions that you perform. Pull the string, that's a straight line. And what is a circle? Well, you take a piece of string and you hold one end fixed and you move the other end around while keeping the string as fully stretched. Okay, that's a circle. Again, a circle is defined in terms of things you do, actions you perform, operations that you perform. Uh, what does it mean for two things to be equal? Well, you put one on top of the other. If they align, neither sticks out beyond the other, then they're equal. That's Euclid's common notion four. Uh, what is a right angle? Well, you cut the space on one side of a line into two equal pieces, then they make a right angle. That's Euclid's definition ten, and so on. All of these things are stuff you do. Every statement that Euclid makes in the elements can be read as a statement about operations or the outcome of operations. Not every geometry book is like that, far from it. You know, most geometry treatises of later eras, they do not allow themselves to be interpreted in operationalist terms, in terms of the doing. Consider, for example, the parallel postulate, postulate 5. This postulate is very convoluted and difficult to read the way Euclid states it. It goes like this. If a straight line falling on two straight lines makes the interior angles on the same side less than two right angles, the two straight lines, if produced indefinitely, meet on that side on which are the angles less than the two right angles. So, well, it's 
quite a mouthful. It, basically, what it says is that if two straight lines are heading toward each other, then they meet. That's a paraphrase in a little bit simpler terms. So the postulate includes a criterion for checking whether two lines are heading towards each other or not. And the way you check that, the way Euclid formulates it, is uh, testing whether two lines are, are uh, heading toward each other or not is done by cutting across the, the two lines by with a third line and then uh, adding up the angles that are produced when you do that. So less than 180 degrees on one side means that the lines are inclined toward each other and they will meet on that side, says the postulate. In fact, it is clear already from Euclid's elements itself that Euclid could have used simpler equivalent statements in place of this very complicated thing. For example, Euclid could have replaced the complicated parallel postulate with a simple statement such as, well, if you have a line and a point that's not on the line, then there's precisely one parallel, or no more than one parallel, to the line uh, through that point. So why did Euclid opt for his much more convoluted formulation of the postulate? The second way of putting it is much simpler, shorter, easier to visualize. Indeed, from the point of view of modern mathematics, Euclid's choice is quite strange. As confirmed by the majority of more modern treatments, which indeed often or almost always prefer the formulation in terms of the existence of parallels, the simpler formulation that I gave. But from an operationalist point of view, Euclid's choice makes perfect sense. Euclid's version of the postulate is purely about operations. If you draw two lines and you discover by this operational test that they stand in such and such a relation in terms of angles, then if you extend them, such and such a thing will happen. All of that is formulated in terms of actions that the geometry performs. The existence formulation, on the other hand, is incompatible with operationalist principles. It only makes sense in some kind of pre-formationist way of thinking, which assumes that all the objects of geometry are already out there, independently of any geometry. You can survey all the lines through a particular uh, point and say only one of those guys is parallel to, uh, to another line, for example. That assumes that uh, all the lines are already there, and you can talk about the set of all lines as a whole. But Euclid never uh, makes those types of assumptions or that type of phraseology. Uh, here's an example of that as well. Euclid doesn't say there are infinitely many prime numbers. Instead, he, sa he effectively says, if you have a list of prime numbers, you can make a larger list of prime numbers. Well, it comes to the same thing, really. However, Euclid's formulation achieves the same goal as the, as the more informal formulation. However... It does so without needlessly entangling itself with this quasi-metaphysical assumption that the set of all prime numbers is some kind of pre-existing entity whose properties we are proving theorems about. There is no need for mathematics to make assumptions of that type, to assume that all the prime numbers are hovering around in some platonic realm. We don't need to make that assumption. If we made that assumption, that would only invite attacks from philosophical skeptics. Operationalism avoids these dubious ontological assumption that the totality of all objects of geometry are somehow already at our disposal, that they are already preformed. The modern formulation of the parallel postulate assumes that mathematicians can, as it were, survey the totality of all lines through a particular point, 
to make proclamations about this infinite set of all possible triangles. Operationalism doesn't make that assumption. It speaks only about particular constructed entities. We can also read, for instance, the Pythagorean theorem in these kinds of terms. So from an operationalist point of view, this theorem does not say that every element of the infinite set of all possible right-angled triangles have a particular property. You might interpret it that way from a modern point of view. However, what operationally speaking, how we must read the theorem is as follows. If you have drawn one right-angled triangle, and if you then draw the squares on each of the sides, then the areas of those particular squares are related in such such a way, you know, a square, b square, c square. But the point is, I formulated in terms of one triangle that you draw. It says, if you draw a, a triangle with these characteristics, that picture is going to have these, these properties. And until you have drawn a right-angle triangle, the theorem has no content, so to speak. Operationalism, therefore, it cuts away a huge amount of philosophical baggage. But at the same time, it allows us to retain virtually all mathematical concepts. Because I could rephrase the parallel postulate, I could rephrase the Pythagorean theorem, I could rephrase the statement that there are infinitely many primes. All of these things, it's that we don't have to make unnecessarily formulate them in such a way that they assume that all prime numbers are already there, all right-angle triangles are already there. Instead, I can formulate it in such a way that uh, speaks only in terms of what we ourselves have constructed, and it comes to the same thing. I can rephrase it in a way that's basically equivalent but that talks only about constructions. So mathematical practice hardly needs to be adapted at all then, as far as switching from this modern way of thinking to the operationalism way of thinking. It's really just a shift in formulations to a large extent, except that when operationalism is adopted, then it is certainly necessary to formulate explicit constructions for all the objects that you deal with. But as we have already seen, there are many strong internal reasons for mathematics to adhere to that principle anyway, that we should always construct stuff that's all so important to begin with. So we can just embrace that as a, a powerful, uh, healthy principle within operationalism. So operationalist geometry is indeed automatically protected from the fallacies that I discussed above in straightforward ways. The existence and false diagram issues are resolved because they could never arise in strict operationalist practice because of its grounding in construction. And likewise, the verbal logic problems do not arise because verbal logic is not accorded any foundational role in operationalist mathematics. So for these reasons, operationalism very conveniently cuts off one fell swoop numerous lines of attack of philosophical skepticism directed at mathematics without the need for hardly any sacrifices in mathematical content. So you just reformulate everything in terms of constructions and you're good to go. And now suddenly all these skeptics who had all these things about what about the super right triangle? What about the liar paradox? They were trying to come at mathematics with all these objections. And if we turn to operationalism, it's just boom. We got rid of all of that in one go. The, none of that is applicable anymore to, to operationalist mathematics. Let's look at uh, some other parallels between this, what I say was the philosophy of ancient 
geometry compared to modern philosophy of science, which uh, I'm saying there are many parallels between these two uh, realms. For instance, operationalism is closely related to positivism. Positivism consists in the claim that uh, science can only speak about observable facts. So, in other words, positivism uh, implies or comes from, is based on a strong adherence to a scientific worldview as the only source of knowledge. It entails a rejection of other kind of humanistic or philosophical theories or belief systems. Science, according to the positivists, prudently restricts itself to what's actually knowable, while other forms of philosophy speculate futilely about ultimate natures of things and all sorts of other concepts that transcend observable reality. So according to this view, the positivist view, all this grandiose philosophizing is wrong-headed. In fact, even strictly meaningless. And here's how Bridgman put this point. It is quite possible, even disquietingly easy, to invent expressions or ask questions that are meaningless. It constitutes a great advance in a critical attitude towards nature to realize that a great many of the questions that we uncritically ask are without meaning. If a scientific question has meaning, it must be possible to find operations by which an answer may be given to it. That's Bridgman's formulation of this principle of positivism, which is a very strong movement in uh, 20th century philosophy of science, a kind of criteria for telling uh, scientific, meaningful scientific reasoning from meaningless games with words, as these people imagine that uh, other branches of uh, philosophical thought were engaged in. It's funny to compare this stuff with uh, how today uh, uh, courses have to have learning goals, you know. You can't say anymore, oh, this course is about quadratic equations. Instead, you have to say, after completing this course, the student will be able to obtain solutions or equations of the form, blah, blah, blah. So, you must operationalize what it means to succeed in the course, in other words. You must state it in terms of what the student can do, not in terms of naming the topics. So this move of going from merely naming things or using, taking the meaningfulness of words like quadratic equations for granted towards translating into actual doable, testable, real-world, uh, kind of checkable characteristics or criteria, that is precisely a way of thinking influenced by this positivistic vision of science about how everything needs to be translated into concretely testable, operationally testable action. In fact, Greek geometry is like that too, isn't it? Everything is formulated in terms of doing. It's not enough to just give names to things. You must make those names meaningful by explaining what you can actually do with them. Here's another quote from Bridgman. Politics, philosophy, and religion are full of purely verbal concepts. Such concepts are outside the field of the physicist. Only in this way can the physicist keep his feet on the ground and achieve a satisfactory degree of precision. That's what Bridgman says, and uh, speaks for many in this positivist tradition in 20th century uh, philosophy of science. Positivism, operationalism, they go hand in hand with this us versus them, scientists versus philosophers type of attitude. In that way, it is as much about rejecting other perspectives as it is about affirming its own 
principles. Quite possibly, that very dynamic was directly parallel in antiquity. We know for a fact that this is very prominent in the 20th century. Maybe Asian mathematicians too felt that their geometry was a lot more grounded in reality than other philosophical systems. In fact, even quasi-scientific theories like the four elements theory, for example, or not to mention obviously more abstract philosophical uh, theories like Aristotle's doctrine of causes or whatever. Um, ancient uh, mathematicians would have felt that their results were qualitatively different from philosophy in terms of reliability, objectivity, and many other dimensions like that. And they may even have felt that much philosophy was empty gibberish, just as many 20th century science-oriented people felt about certain parts of philosophy. Perhaps this would have led Asian mathematicians to articulate general methodological principles, then in order to explain, as it were, why their form of reasoning and knowledge was superior to that of the philosophers. Precisely as many scientists have been inclined to do in, in later years. Maybe that was a desire among Greek mathematicians and as well. Suppose that was the case. Then, what methodological dicta might the Greek mathematicians have seized upon to set their field apart from philosophy? Well, certainly not anything like the modern identification of mathematics with logic or axiomatic deductive reasoning. Logic and deduction were already highly prized among Greek philosophers. If anything, they were too obsessed with deductive logic. Sino's argument that there can be no such thing as motion is one example among many of extreme faith in abstract deductive reasoning, even when it is in blatant conflict with the most basic common sense. So ancient mathematicians, they could certainly had no hope of standing out by their reliance on abstract deductive reasoning. They, they could not have said, here's the thing that makes us different from philosophers. On the contrary, the philosophers used abstract deductive reasoning to an enormous extent, like Zeno. Axiomatics as well, far from an exclusive purview of the mathematicians, Indeed, it is obvious that basing one's theories on a list of allegedly evident but ultimately unjustified axioms is very convenient for mathematicians and any other philosopher of sophists alike. Maybe even be reasonable to say that the abundance of deductive philosophical systems that were clearly in conflict with one another would rather have been an incentive for the mathematicians to insist that, unlike the philosophers, they did not rely on abstract logic on axiomatic deductive reasoning. Operationalism would have been an alternative that was readily at hand for the mathematicians in this quest to set themselves apart from the philosophers. Constructions had always been a central part of geometry, from the time of the Egyptian rope stretchers, as they were called, whom the Greek uh, tradition identifies the originators of the field. Later theoretical developments, like the rationality of the square root of two, also spoke in favor of taking geometry as the foundational bedrock of all mathematics. So it might have been a short and natural step for the mathematicians to tie the foundations of their subject to their already ubiquitous ruler and compass. To the mathematicians, it would have cost little to embrace this all-out radical operationalism. Virtually all of mathematics is readily susceptible to being reframed in such a paradigm, in operationalist terms. It would have been a way of 
legitimating existing mathematical practice that, that would have necessitated little or no deviation from what they were already doing. So operationalism was uh, readily at hand, not an expensive move to make for the mathematicians. And meanwhile, other branches of philosophy stood no chance of founding their teachings on an operationalist basis. You go ahead and try to formulate Aristotle's theory of causes or the theory of the soul or whatever in operationalist term. Good luck, you know, there's no way they will ever succeed with that. So if the mathematicians were looking for a way to set themselves apart from philosophers, that is to say to explain why their field, why mathematics has cumulative progress, universal agreement, inviolable truths, while philosophy has just paradoxes and schools in constant disagreement with one another without any prospect of reconciliation, if a mathematician wanted to explain that, then operationalism would have been an obvious way to go criteria for explaining why mathematics is different from these other fields. Here's another aspect of this theme from modern 20th century philosophy of science that is also applicable in, in, in antiquity. Another virtue of positivism is that it restricts all knowledge claims to the domain of what is actually knowable in a straightforward empirical sense. Failing to adhere to positivism means making statements that are, by their very nature, empirically unverifiable, and hence, arguably, unknowable, almost by definition. Now, unlike most of philosophy, any statement of geometry is readily equated with a claim regarding certain empirical circumstances. Like, the angle sum of a triangle is 180 degrees. This is something you can test just draw the thing and check it. Try to take a claim somewhere in Aristotle. How would you concretely go and test that in a lab? You know, that doesn't work. So the ancient mathematicians had a golden opportunity there to highlight that this natural attribute of the field is a kind of an epistemic virtue that separates geometry from philosophy, this testability. They could pose to these head-in-the-clouds philosophers the very difficult challenge of explaining what good a theory is if it has no cash value in the real world in the form of empirically testable claims. They could stress that geometry, by contrast, has no need to engage in that kind of theorizing, in discussing things that don't correspond to a concretely measurable or testable circumstances in the real world. And related to this is the ideal of falsifiability. When the geometers claim that any triangle has angle sum of two right angles, the geometers are kind of sticking their necks out. If their claim was false, it should be simple enough to find a counterexample. The, the operationalist formulation of geometry makes it possible to press this point very strongly. The theorem just means if you put a ruler down on a piece of paper and you draw three intersecting lines, and if you then cut out the three corners and put them point to point, these three pieces will fill precisely the angle on one side of a straight line. It's another way of saying that they are 180 degrees. The very meaning of the theorem, interpreted that way, therefore, directly contains a recipe for testing the, the claim and potentially falsifying the claim. You can make all kinds of triangles, and if, there were, if the claim was false, 
it should be easy to find a counterexample because there are many different shapes of triangles and you just test them until you find one that's wrong. You know, it's a challenge that the mathematician poses to his opponents and that uh, they will find that it's very difficult indeed to find counterexamples. In fact, impossible. Falsificationism as a philosophy of science, a principle of philosophy of science, is most strongly associated with the philosopher of science Karl Popper. That was in the first half of the 20th century. To Popper, falsifiability is what sets science apart from non-science. As examples of non-scientific theories, Popper had in mind things like the theories of Marx and Freud. They were very influential at that time. So these theories, they had a sort of quasi-scientific appearance. They postulated fundamental laws, and they used these laws to explain many phenomena. However, according to Popper, these things were pseudoscience. The Marxist theory of economic development, how societies are going to naturally lead to from this stage to that stage and so on, or Freudian psychoanalysis. According to Popper, those things were pseudoscientific theories. Because no matter what phenomena were observed, they could always, these, the, the proponents of these theories of Marxism or Freudianism, they could always tell some kind of story about how that fits with with their laws and their frameworks and their claims. So these theories, they kind of pretended to have laws, but these laws were vague enough to allow many different possible applications. So that almost anything could be construed as consistent with the principle of the theory one way or the other. It's just like astrological horoscopes in the newspaper. You know, they make so-called predictions about the, the future, but in fact they're so vague that uh, they can often be interpreted as having been correct, no matter what happens. This is why Popper emphasized the importance of falsifiability. For a prediction to be scientific, there must be clearly specified conditions under which it will be regarded as having failed. The scientist must say, if such and such a thing happens, then I was wrong. Before making an experiment or observation, the scientist must already set down those criteria in advance. They must be on the record. Non-scientific theories, like those of Freud or Marx, are not like that, according to Popper. Advocates of those theories, they use them to explain all kinds of things, but they never say, if such and such a thing were to happen, then that would prove me wrong, and I would give up the theory. Uh, according to Popper, the followers of Freud and Marx don't have the guts, as it were, to, to uh, stipulate conditions like that. So they only pretend to be scientific, even though they are not, according to this condition. Formulating geometry in terms of constructive operations is indeed a way of making it scientific in Popper's sense. It makes the theorems of geometry directly testable. Euclid's constructions are like lab instructions for carrying out a hypothesis test in the sense of Popper. You can just do the construction and measure for yourself if it came out the way the theorem said. Any Euclidean theorem translates into do so-and-so with the ruler and compass and then you know, check whether a particular thing is equal to another thing or not. All testable stuff. For instance, Euclid's parallel postulate. That's something that can be performed and tested in a very concrete way. It says, here's what's going to happen if you draw this kind of configuration. Alternative to the parallel postulate are not like that. Instead of the parallel postulate, you can say, 
given a line and a point, there's precisely one parallel to the given line through that given point. But how can you test that? It's in the form of a metaphysical statement rather than in the form of a falsifiable scientific hypothesis. There is one and only one parallel. It's like saying there's one and only one God. How can you verify that? How could you ever prove it wrong? Well, you can't. Unlike scientific hypotheses, unlike operationalist geometry, statements of that form do not come with a concrete set of operations one can perform to see if it works or not. So operationalizing geometry makes it falsifiable. And it also makes geometry theory independent. You do not need to accept the definitions and postulates of the mathematicians in order to perform the empirical test. Skeptics who try to criticize mathematics in general terms can therefore be confronted with this concrete challenge, regardless of whether you accept any of our assumptions or modes of reasoning, we offer to you hundreds upon hundreds of claims that are of the form. If you perform such and such concrete operation, then the outcome will always be one particular way rather than another way. Feel free to prove us wrong, the mathematician can say. It will be impossible to meet this challenge because there are no counterexamples to the claims the mathematicians make, and it would also be very difficult to dismiss this challenge as illegitimate or irrelevant. So the, by taking this kind of stance, the geometry has sort of cornered its opponent into a very uncomfortable situation. How, how are you supposed to reply when you are faced with this challenge? We're like, well, if you don't trust geometry, why don't you just show me a counterexample then to these specific claims that I make? The operationalist formulation of mathematical statements is reducible to straightforward recipes whose neutrality and objectivity is very difficult to deny. So that's why the critics don't have a, a, any good foothold of trying to dismiss this challenge. You know, That is in stark contrast, in fact, with many philosophical claims, which must often be bought into or rejected wholesale, along with an entire theory, because all the parts of the theory are interdependent. Even the very meaning of the concepts in a theory that the theory uses are inherently bound up with the, the system as a whole. This is how it works. If you read some Aristotle, some Kant or something, the, the, the meaning of the terms are sort of, well, it all fits together, you know. You can't really understand any one part of the theory only, you know, separately. You can only understand how it all, in terms of how all the different parts interact. So that's why a philosophical theory like that of Aristotle or Kant or something, you, those, you pretty much have to kind of take the whole package because they're very difficult to pick and choose because uh, you know once you're committed to to a certain theoretical concepts that automatically entails that you're also committed to all these other things and you you get the whole package uh, before you know it operationalism ensures that geometry is not like that operationalism is not this kind of entangled uh, holism this big ball of interrelated things so maybe I can illustrate this point with an analogy. Uh, consider a casino. You have a roulette and blackjack. And, uh, you play those games with casino money. They are plastic chips. They only have meaning and value inside the casino. Once you leave the casino, you can't buy anything for those worthless poker chips uh, of plastic. Non-scientific thought systems, such as philosophy or religion, 
They are like the casino. Internally, they have all kinds of intricate laws and explanations for how everything fits together. And it's easy to get caught up in the system once you buy into it. But if you want to connect it to the real world, you have to ask yourself, what is the actual cash value of this stuff? That is to say, what could I actually do with any of this in the real world concretely, in particular in concrete situations? Operationalism is cash value geometry. It translates everything into real-world operations that anyone can perform. It's cash money. You can use it directly and it works. It's not casino money, which only makes sense if you accept the entire premise of the casino with all its internal rules and how roulette works. And so, Only for somebody who is already within the casino does the casino money make any sense. And it's the same with the philosophical system where the concepts that it employs only make sense within the system itself. And, have questionable value outside of that system, or difficult to link to concrete value outside of the system. Even someone who doesn't believe in the postulates of Euclid, or doesn't believe in geometrical proofs and so on, even a person like that can test these things. They can cut the corners of a triangle and see if they fit together the way Euclid says they should. Or they can draw squares on the sides of a right angle triangle and see if indeed the areas are equal, like Pythagoras says. Those are uh, scientifically, concretely, real-world testable claims. All right, so let me try to summarize now everything that I have said today. I presented the philosophy of mathematics called operationalism that solves certain problems. Operationalism safeguards mathematics against a multitude of plagues. It prevents us from reasoning about entities and concepts that are inconsistent or incoherent or non-existent or imaginary. Mathematicians could have had every reason to articulate a philosophy like that. Greek antiquity was an age of skeptical philosophical attacks. Mathematics would have found itself under attack, and its enemies were no fools. Logic and rigor of mathematical proofs were by and large hugely impressive. Yet, it had this conspicuous Achilles heel, a veritable self-destruct button that could bring the entire edifice crashing down at the slightest trigger. For if there was any way an inconsistency could slip into mathematical reasoning undetected, then everything that followed would immediately be rendered logically worthless. What guarantee do we have that this will never happen, or indeed that it has not already happened in mathematics? This vulnerability pertains especially to the way objects are introduced into mathematical discourse. It's safe to say, let ABC be a right-angled triangle. But if you say, let ABC be a triangle with two right angles, then you have introduced an inconsistency and all is lost. Because then you could prove that 2 equals 1 and the entire credibility of mathematics collapses. So geometry needs to systematically guarantee that it could never commit an error of that type. In other words, it needs a meticulous gatekeeping policy that allows only the most carefully vetted entities to enter mathematical discourse. Constructions are the answer to this problem. By insisting that geometry only speaks of entities that are constructed, the mathematician immediately knocks the legs out under boogeyman examples of inconsistent objects, such as the super-right triangle. Constructions also ground mathematics in reality. It gives a straightforward account of what geometry is and what geometrical statements mean. 
This can be used to set geometry apart from empty philosophy, from metaphysics, religion, astrology, all kinds of empty pseudoscience. Philosophers of science in the 20th century spent a lot of effort trying to formulate the criteria that distinguished science from non-science. One of their answers was falsifiability. Scientists bravely specify what would prove them wrong. It's the idea of falsifiability. Scientists say, try this for yourself. If it, it doesn't come out the way I said, then I promise I will admit that I was wrong and that my theory should be rejected. This was a way to set science apart from non-science. Philosophers of science in the modern era also found that in order to follow through in this program, it was important to translate abstract theoretical notions into observable real-world terms. Instead of merely speaking abstractly about, for instance, the concept of force or of gravity, it is necessary to translate the meaning of that theory into something doable, something testable. Uh, for example, if you hang these lead weights from this spring, then the spring will extend by so and so many centimeters. Things like that is what the concept of gravity comes down to in practical terms, stuff you can test in the lab. This concreteness is essential to science, and it is essential to separate science from fancy games with words, as you can find in other branches of philosophy. Euclid's geometry is a perfect fit for all this stuff. It's almost as if Euclid had read these 20th century philosophers of science. Maybe Euclid and his friends had many of the same ideas indeed. Maybe they too wanted to set their theory apart and explain why it was superior to other branches of philosophy. The way they base geometry on constructions is a perfect fit for making those kinds of arguments. So there you go. There are many reasons to ground geometry in constructions. It's not for nothing that all depictions of Euclid show him with ruler and compass in hand. They are no mere practitioner's tools. They are in fact essential even to the theoretical foundations of geometry in numerous respects. That's what I have tried to argue today. Thank you.